Good morning. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 6. You'll find the notes this morning's message in the bulletin. And if you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text on the back of the notes. I'll remind you that we are working our way through John chapter 6. This is our sixth study in John chapter 6, 71 verses. And I want to briefly remind you where we've come and why we're looking at this as a unit. Uh, Following the pattern of John chapter 5, Jesus, in the opening verses, works a notable sign and a miracle. And so in verses 1 to 15, we have the relating of that sign. Then, unlike John 5 that immediately goes into Jesus talking, explaining the significance of the sign, John gets the, the... principal players from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other. And so from 16 to 24, we have first the disciples crossing in a boat, Jesus crossing, walking on the water, and the crowd the next morning crossing. They all reconvene, starting in verse 25, when the crowd meets Jesus and asks him to perform another sign, specifically feed them again. And so this is known as the bread of life discourse where Jesus makes one of the seven great I am statements in John's gospel. And we've been working through it slowly because there is rich and profound truth here. From another perspective, John 5 and John 6 mark and explain why it is Jesus was rejected by his national kinsmen. If you turn back to chapter 4, you'll remember when we were studying Jesus with the Samaritans, that I said this was the high watermark. This is Jesus' only unqualified success. An entire town apparently comes to faith in him, and they want him to stay, and and Jesus doesn't stay. Why does he leave? 4.43, after two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. And then that is exactly what we see in chapter 5, Jerusalem and the Jews there going from wanting to persecute him to 5.18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. So the religious leaders, the Jews in Jerusalem now want to kill Jesus. What about the crowds? What about the large groups of people who followed Jesus? And this crowd initially looks encouraging. They go out into the wilderness. They find Jesus. They stay with him all day. The people we're dealing with here have actually spent the night, almost certainly, get up to follow Jesus again. And yet Jesus told them last week, we saw plainly, you do not believe in me. This is an unbelieving crowd. And as chapter 6 goes on, let's, let's mark some of the, uh, the marks in the text. Jesus begins speaking. We get the first response in verse 41. So we're going to pick up this morning. Um, the Jews grumbled. Then in verse 52... The Jews disputed among themselves. Then, narrowing it down further in verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard teaching. Who can listen to it? And then, finally, Jesus asked the 12 in verse 67, do you want to go away as well? This is a chapter of winnowing, narrowing. A vast crowd narrows down to, as far as we can tell, just the 12. Maybe a few other hangers on, but... Jesus goes from mass acclaim and a huge crowd down to just a remnant of those people. How how can that be? Why is that? Why would they reject him? We're seeing that here in chapter 6. So those are some of the themes at work. So let's begin our time by reading the 10 verses we'll be looking at this morning. 
A word of prayer and we'll begin our study. John 6, 41-51. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that has come down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Lord God, we pray that you would give us the grace of faith not to grumble or stumble or trip over what Jesus says like the Jews, but that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, that you would take hard hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh, that your spirit would birth life where there is no life. And for those of us who do see, that you would open our eyes to behold even more of your glory in your word, that we would come to understand rightly what Jesus is saying and embrace it by faith. Lord, we would have eternal life. We would be those who believe. We ask this in your name. Amen. As last time, we're going to follow this simply by following the, 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 the dialogue. The Jews say something. That's one of our markers. It's the response from what he just said. Then Jesus responds to that. And Jesus' response has two lobes, as it were, two themes we're going to look at as we work to our next response. You'll notice I broke at verse 51 because in verse 52, we get the Jews' next response. That's how we're working through here. So let's begin with the Jews grumble against themselves. The Jews grumble amongst, sorry, themselves. Now this is interesting that we've got a new player here. From the beginning of chapter one, we've been dealing with the crowd. In fact, if you go back to verse 22, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there was only been one boat there. And from then on, it's they said, they said. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said. And so Jesus has been interacting with the remnant, the subset of the crowd, those who spent the night presumably in the wilderness, got in the boats, came over to Capernaum to find him. All of a sudden now, we've got a new character, the Jews. And this, is, this is not simply mean Israelites. John's use of the term the Jews um, is, seems to be more focused than that. Your blank here is this is the fourth occurrence of the Jews in John's gospel. Back in chapter 1, if you remember, when John the Baptist gives testimony, we read, and this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So we know the Jews from Jerusalem sent a delegation. Now later, in John 1.24, we're told, now they had been sent by the Pharisees. So when John here in chapter 1 talks about the Jews, these are Jews in Jerusalem with significant overlap from the Pharisees. 
Then when Jesus is in Jerusalem in chapter 2, and he cleanses the temple, it is the Jews that said to him in 2.18, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And even though they don't show up in chapter 3, how is Nicodemus introduced? He is a ruler of the Jews. The Jews show up again as a title. And what I'm saying is when John says the Jews, he means something other than Israelites. He means something a little narrower. We're going to have to pay attention as we work forward on this, but something a little narrower than simply Israelites or people from Judea. Um, We'll see here. In chapter 5, if you turn back, who is Jesus having conflict with in chapter 5? It's the Jews. In John 5, um, 16, this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. He's in Jerusalem. And then in 5.18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Now, it might be tempting to say so far the Jews have been um, identified as people living in Jerusalem. It might be, maybe that's all John means, the Jews in Jerusalem. That can't be the case here because these Jews know Jesus' parents, which, which means they're almost certainly from Nazareth or more likely from Capernaum here. And so it, it can't simply mean that. If, if you want me to show you, or I'll show you whether you want to or not, go to chapter 7. That's a, that's a bad way of saying it. Hey, do you want me to? Go to chapter 7. I'll show you what I mean, that John's usage of the term the Jews gets a little, it's, it's clear he doesn't just mean Israelites. And we're not going to solve it this morning. All I want you to get is that normally when John labels a group of people the Jews, labeling a specific group of people as opposed to the um, the um, Oh, good grief. The Day of Atonement or the Passover of the Jews. Wow. Um, He means something negative. Look at chapter 7, and we'll start in verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, he also went up, not publicly, but private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray, yet for fear of the Jews. No one spoke openly of him. Surely most of the people are technically Jews, and yet John contrasts the people who are confused and disputing about themselves about who Jesus is from the Jews. They seem to be more decidedly opposed to Jesus. So anyway, that's, that's the observation to make here, that this group emerges. And there's a couple possibilities of who are they. We know from verse 59 of chapter 6 that Jesus, by the time 59 gets here, is speaking in a synagogue in Capernaum. Now, we're not told where the crowd from the other side of the Sea of Galilee meets Jesus, but it's likely in the synagogue. There's no mention in the text of movement. So it's it's possible they met Jesus when they found him in verse uh, 24 and 25 of chapter 6. It's possible there's movement. It's also equally likely, and I think even more probable, they found him in the synagogue. So we've got a group of people who came over on boats. They're talking with Jesus. But presumably at the synagogue, there are people from Capernaum. There are people from the other area. We know it's about the time of Passover. And so there's also possibly travelers stopping in Capernaum on their way to Jerusalem. And so John is grabbing a group of people that could share some overlap with the crowd. It could share some overlap with people who lived in the town. And it could share some overlap with visitors. We know there's at least some overlap with the crowd because Jesus' response picks up a thread the crowd introduced. When Jesus says, your fathers ate bread in the wilderness, he's responding to what the crowd had said. So there's some overlap and some distinction. 
So that's, that's the first thing to note. The Jews crumble among themselves. Now notice what they stumble over. It's not Jesus' claim to be bread. They, they say what they stumble over. The Jews grumbled about him because that, he said, I'm the bread come down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say, I have come down from heaven? It's Jesus' claim to, as we'd understand it, divinity. It's Jesus' claim to be from heaven that they're tripping up on. They're tripping up on this precisely because they know his parents. His parents are known to them. So they stumble over Jesus' claim to be from heaven, for his parents are known to them. And this is what links up with chapter 4, where Jesus said, A prophet is not without honor, and except in his hometown. It's that age-old problem that familiarity brings contempt. Now, one of the things that's striking here is the crowd, in, in chapter 6, verse 14, rightly identifies Jesus. What do they say in chapter 6, verse 14? This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. In other words, the prophet that Moses predicted. But in Moses' prediction of that prophet in Deuteronomy 18, what does he say? Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord, will, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. This group of people who've already suggested this is the prophet, should not be surprised that the prophet like Moses that the Lord would raise up is raised up from among their brothers. That should not surprise them. But what they're, they're tripped up on is Jesus' claims to grandeur. They're willing to recognize him as a miracle worker. And again, we're seeing some of what is wrong with a faith that demands and requires and is fed exclusively by miracles. They can trust that God is working through Jesus, but when Jesus makes some of his greater claims to divinity, they will have none of it. They're tripping up over this. And notice also the irony. In this grumbling, they act just like their fathers before them, don't they? In, in some respects, John chapter 6 is just the wilderness wanderings of Israel played out again. Moses leads the people out of Egypt, and they grumble and complain, and God feeds them, and they grumble and complain, and they grumble and complain, and they grumble and complain. They've been out in the wilderness with Jesus, Jesus has fed them miraculous bread and food, and here they are grumbling. Yes, I think John wants us, the reader, to see the similarity. They're bearing the same fruit as their fathers. They made the connection. Our fathers ate bread in the wilderness. Yes, they did, and what also did they do? They grumbled and complained, and so are you. So are you. So the Jews grumble amongst themselves, verses 41 to 42. So how will Jesus respond? How will Jesus respond? Let's read verses 43 to 46. Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. So Jesus insists they need divine enabling. They need divine enabling. And again, we we mentioned this last week. Jesus is not shaken by this response. Jesus is not doing a self-reevaluation of his ministry style and approach so that he might be more favorably received. Jesus takes comfort in the sovereignty of God over the result, the crop that his witnessing gives. You can't miss it here. This is some of the strongest language 
for the sovereignty of God in the Bible. And it's Jesus explaining why is it that this crowd is unbelieving and grumbling. So Jesus warns the Jews. Jesus warns the Jews. Their grumbling is dangerous. Their grumbling is dangerous. They, after all, are the ones who've already made the connection with Moses in the wilderness. Our fathers ate bread from heaven, as it is written. Yes, they did. And we saw last week about how their fathers got sick of it and cried out and complained. And what happened? God sent serpents. Oh, yes. If you're going to make the connection between being fed in the wilderness and grumbling, grumbling's a pretty dangerous thing to do. There might be some snakes coming up to bite you. In fact, let me quote from Gordon Lightfoot. So long as man remains and is content to remain confident in his own ability without divine help, to assess and experience the meaning of to experience, to assess and experience and the meaning of experience he cannot come to the lord he cannot believe only the father can move him to this step with its incalculable and final results he warns them it's dangerous to be grumbling because they think they can understand without god's grace that's the thing that's evident they're not even talking to jesus they're talking amongst themselves they're having a communal discussion how does, how does he say he's coming from heaven? What We know his parents. That, that's what's going on. And Jesus is warning them. That this, this text here serves as a warning. Be, be, be warned. Don't grumble. And don't presume to think you in your flesh, in your own wisdom, in your own cleverness, can sort these things out. This is, in fact, very similar to Jesus' rebuke and warning to Nicodemus. Remember, Nicodemus comes to Jesus in John 3, says, Teacher, we know you're from, Rabbi, we know you are from God, for no one can do the signs you do unless God is with him. And Jesus immediately checks Nicodemus' self-confidence. Who are you to think you would be able to see and understand and interpret spiritual reality? That's what he's saying here to these people. They're having their little group discussion. What does he mean? How can he say this? Be Be careful. Be careful. Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Don't, don't presume to think you in your own wisdom and in your own strength, in your flesh, can sort these things out. Have you, have you considered I might not be in a position where I can make sense of and rightly evaluate these truths? And then Jesus says the strong statement of negative ability. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So here's the blank. Only those drawn by the Father can come to Jesus. Now, this is one of those verses where you should slow down and look at the language. You've got a universal inclusive, no one. How how many people form the group of, of no one? Zero. It's universal exclusive. No one. How many people can? None. Not one. No one can come that's ability no one has the ability to come to jesus unless the father who sent me draws him only those drawn by the father can come to jesus this is a statement of complete inability he's not saying it's hard for them to come to the father to jesus he's not saying it's difficult they they can't they cannot come That is a humbling reality. Again, similar to Nicodemus. You need to be born of the Spirit, Jesus tells Nicodemus, and you are powerless to make the Spirit birth you. The wind blows where it wishes. This is similar to that. He's checking their pride. He's checking their pride. Now, the first thing I want to point out is that their inability 
if you've been tracking in John's gospel, their inability is due to their own desires. In other words, it's an internal restriction. Don't, don't see Jesus as saying something outside of them is stopping them, as though this crowd wants to come to Jesus, but there's an invisible glass wall stopping them. Turn back to chapter 3. We know why people can't come, and the reason why people can't come is that they won't come. They refuse to come. With similar universal, inclusive, and exclusive language, we get this in John 3.19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. How many people don't come to the light? Everyone who does wicked things. How many people do wicked things? Everyone. That's another universal statement of inability. But we are told here why. They don't come because of what they love and what they hate. It's their own desires preventing them. To put it as simply as I can, you will never come to something that you couldn't possibly want to come to. Fair enough? If there's no scenario where you'd ever want something, there's no scenario where you'd choose it. And if you hate the light, and everything in you hates the light, what part of you would ever want to choose the light? No part of you. So Jesus is saying this now. We've already heard in John's gospel some explanations. So don't think Jesus is saying something external to these people is prohibiting these people. It's their own nature. In fact, Jonathan Edwards would say it's precisely man's freedom that enslaves him. You get to do what you want. Everyone gets to do what they want. In fact, you must do what you want. And the problem is what happens when all that you want is only evil continually? Then when are you going to choose good? if you choose what you want. Anyway, so Jesus makes this devastating declaration. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So total inability. Their inability is due to their own desires, due to their own desires. In fact, turn over to John 8. Jesus makes a similar point. And this is important because people hear this and they think, oh, these poor people, as if God is preventing people from coming to Jesus. Look at John 8, verse 43. Again, Jesus talking to a bunch of Jews. These are the Jews who believed in him, if you track it back. John 8, 43. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. That's language of desire. I can't tolerate it. It's intolerable. You, he says to the Jews who had believed in him, or if your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. We're talking about loving and hating and willing and what you want. This is the nature of man's inability. The nature of man's inability is that we're born hating the light, loving the darkness because our deeds are evil. And so Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the father sent me draws him. Only those drawn by the father can come to Jesus. Now, point two, those the father draws are also those he gave to Jesus. We're picking up on the thought from last week. All that the turn, turn back a few verses to see what we looked at last week where he says in verse um, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. So we're renaming the group. This is the group of people who come to Jesus. Who is that group? Well, you could say in verse 
um, 37, all those who come to Jesus are those the Father has given to Jesus. And here, all those who come to Jesus are those who are drawn by the Father, which makes a really remarkable truth. Those who come to Jesus are the Father's gift to Jesus. And for those who come to Jesus, Jesus is the Father's gift to us. If you're a Christian, you've both been given to Jesus and been given Jesus. How's that for grace? Those the Father draws are also those he gave. Then point three here under point B, and this is the really significant point. All who are drawn will come to Jesus and be raised. And this is the grammar is important. Um, There's no room in this verse to suppose that the group of those drawn and the group of those raised is different. See, some, some people struggling with the uh, predestinarian implications of this verse want to say, well, maybe, maybe the Father draws everyone. Everyone gets drawn. And, 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 and only some come. The, the problem is, notice the, the pronouns here. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one's singular. Literally, no one means not one. Not one person can come to me unless the Father sent me draws him. And the first him is the person drawn. But then notice the next phrase, and I will raise him. There's a one-to-one correspondence. The one drawn, the same him who is drawn, is the him who gets raised. Every drawn him is a raised him, if that makes any sense. The group of those who are drawn is identical to the group of those who are raised, in other words. The grammar is clear. All who are drawn will come to Jesus and be raised, similar to all that the Father gave Jesus will come to Jesus. This is is all part of one developing thought. And so Jesus' declaration is, is a rebuke to their and to our arrogance that we think we have the decisive factor that we, with our wisdom, can size these things up. We will sort these things out. We will decide whether or not we will give Jesus our valuable faith. No, we're fallen. We're corrupt. And we are in desperate need of God's grace. And so Jesus is warning anyone who would be so bold as to try to sort these things out without recognizing their need of God's help. And the other point here is this. For those of us who have come to Jesus, God would have the glory even for that. God would have the praise and the glory. If you are one who has come to Jesus, understand it's because the Father has drawn you, and he would be praised for that. He would be praised for that. So moving from the the necessity, only those drawn by the Father can come to Jesus, what do we make of the next sentence, verse 45 and 46? It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he was from God. He has seen the Father. Well, I think the flow of thought is this. When Jesus speaks of drawing being the necessary precondition and the sufficient condition for those to come to Jesus, we may ask, well, what does that mean? In fact, if you were to look this word up in Greek, you could translate it drag. Later in John's Gospel in 8.10, it's used to draw a sword. Or even more vividly, in John 21, 6, of a net drawing fishing. Is that how the Father draws people? He just scoops them up in a net, just forces them to come along? No, I think the very next verse explains what it means. 
In fact, your, your blank here is this. The father draws men by means of teaching. The father draws men by means of teaching. There's no coercion. There's no force. There's no external force driving. Rather, there's a revelation. There's a being taughtness of God. And on the other side of that, there is a new understanding. That's, I believe, what Jesus is saying here. He's quoting Isaiah 54, 13. Let's, I think we have time. Let's turn there. Isaiah 54, 13. If you turn in your Old Testaments. And this passage in Isaiah 54 is the Lord speaking to Jerusalem, his people, describing how they've, they've been faithless and they've been separated from their husband and their maker, but the Lord God intends to restore them. It's a beautiful passage. Let's pick it up in um, oh, verse 10. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed. But my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antinomy and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate and your gates of carbuncle and all your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by God, and great shall be the peace of your children in righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. And he goes on describing the blessings when God revisits his people in Israel. So Jesus quotes this to make it clear there is a promise that God in the coming time will teach his people. They'll be taught by God. This is similar to the language of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. The Lord your God will give you a new heart, and you shall not say to each one, come know the Lord, for they shall each know me. Or God's writing his law on our hearts. That's another way of speaking about it. Or I'd say another way of describing is being regenerated. Or having your eyes that were blinded opened, your ears that were deaf unstopped, or your heart that was stone replaced. The Father does such drawing gently, like, like opening a shade on a window and letting light in. And, and if you think back to how you became a Christian, wasn't it, at least in part, that one day things started to make sense? You started to understand. You started to see. You started to see your sin. You started to see the evil of what you're doing. You started to fear the judgment of God. And you began to look around for a way of escape and a Savior, and Christ seemed beautiful. Do not credit yourself that you were clever enough finally to figure things out. You were smart enough finally to do the math. Give God the glory. If, if you've come to Christ, you've been drawn by God, and the way God draws is by teaching and revealing his truth. That's what Jesus means by connecting these dots here. So let's fill in some of the blanks. All who learn and hear and learn from the Father come to Jesus. Again, we've got this universally inclusive language. It's written in the prophets, they'll be taught by God. Everyone... Not some, not most. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Again, the group of people who are drawn, the group of people who are taught by God is identical to the group of people who come to Jesus, which is identical to the group of people Jesus raises. That, that Grammatically, that's inescapable in this passage. It's the same group. 
The drawn group is the taught group, is the group that comes to Jesus, is the group that Jesus raises in the last day. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And in, and in, in this, Jesus is hearkening back to a rebuke he gave to the Jews in Jerusalem. Turn back to 537. Chapter 5, verse 37 disputing with those Jews precisely over the same claims that he is from God. He made himself an equal with God and the Jews in Jerusalem wanted to kill him. And in 537, Jesus says, and the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And then later, he makes it clear they haven't even received scripture. Look at verse 46. If you believed Moses... You would believe me if you wrote of me. So here in chapter 6, Jesus is making it clear a necessary precondition is to, to have been taught, to have heard God. And this is not referring to some esoteric walking out in nature, Emily Dickinson, self-introspection, communal with God. The next sentence makes it clear this is, this is revelatory and it's something Jesus mediates. Point two, Jesus alone has seen the Father. Well, why does he say that there? Well, he's just made it clear drawing is essential to come to him. And then he's explained that the drawing is a teaching and a hearing from God. Well, lest anyone think they can just sort of knock on God's door and say, okay, Lord, I would, I would be taught. Jesus is now isolating himself, like he's done in the gospel already, as the unique and only one who can communicate that revelation. That's the significance here. Jesus alone has seen the Father. And this is something that's been hammered throughout John's gospel. In the prologue, John chapter 1, verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. He has translated him. He has narrated him. He has communicated him. That's the idea behind the word. This is the same insistent truth that Jesus makes with Nicodemus. In chapter 3, verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. And the point again he's making with Nicodemus is, I and I alone am qualified to teach you heavenly things. And you don't receive my teaching, he tells Nicodemus. This is partly, again, why Jesus is so insistent on the fact that he is more than just a good teacher. He is claiming, in other words, and here's point three, that he and he alone mediates, he doles out the Father's teaching. He and he alone has seen the Father so the teaching that you need, there's almost a circular logic here. You can't come to Jesus unless you're taught of the Father, and you can only be taught by the Father through Jesus. That's what Jesus is claiming. He and he alone has seen the Father. So you don't go out for a walk in the woods to try to commune with God if you don't know him. You come to his son, his son who is his representative, his son who is his spokesman. His son who does nothing but what he sees the father doing so that Jesus later can tell Thomas, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. So Jesus is insisting their desperate need of drawing. The drawing is in fact a teaching and Jesus himself is the only one qualified to give it. He and he alone has been into heaven. That, that's the radical claim of authority Jesus is making. And this is why it matters that he defend the claim he is from heaven. They need, they need to receive him as such. And so he, he tells them this. 
Which brings us finally to the, the, the last section of what Jesus says. We returns now to the theme of bread. Bread has been dominating chapter 6. It will dominate chapter 6. We've had this sort of aside as Jesus explains and defends and, and unpacks why it's critical that, yes, indeed, he is from heaven. And why it is they're unqualified to make sense of him. They should stop grumbling, recognize their need, and recognize Jesus as the one who can satisfy their need. The Father speaks through Jesus and Jesus alone. Point three. Jesus bids them eat the bread that he will give. Jesus bids them eat the bread that he will give. For the third time in this chapter, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, marking everything Jesus says is trustworthy, but it seems to be a way Jesus intensifies or identifies solemn, critical truth. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, the last paragraph of Jesus' teaching is hard and challenging and humbling. This next paragraph is welcoming, inviting, encouraging, uplifting. These truths relate in tension. On the one hand, you cannot come to Jesus unless the Father who sent him draws you. On the other hand, everyone who comes to Jesus gets raised. No one gets turned away. Everyone who believes has life. And Jesus bids these unbelieving, grumbling people eat the bread that he will give. So, A, we see first an invitation. Just as there was a universal exclusive in verse 44, no one can come to me. Here we get a universal inclusive. Whoever believes has eternal life. And if you're here this morning and and you're in that category of being an unbeliever, Yes, it is good for you to recognize your need. Yes, it is good to be humbled and realize you, in your own wisdom and in your flesh, do not have it within you to make sense of Jesus' claims or to find the desire to come to him. That's true. But also, Jesus doesn't want you to sit here wondering, well, am I being called or not? Just come, believe. That's the invitation. Eat the bread. Come, believe. And if you are able to do that, you can be assured you have life. Whoever believes has eternal life. So, so this is not meant for people to sort out first before they can come or not. Well, I need to first figure out if the Father's drawing me. I'm not sure if I'm elect or unelect. No, just, just come. Now come in dependence. Come in humility. Come recognizing your need, but come all the same and believe and have life. This is an open to anyone. Anyone, whoever, similar to Jesus' other statement, whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. And so even as this this declaration of inability is made, which is hard, there is an open invitation to all. Anyone who wants to come to Jesus can. No one gets turned away. Whoever believes has life. We have an invitation. Whoever believes has eternal life. And And that is ultimately Jesus' mission is life, life for those that the Father has given to him. 
Point B, we move now to a clear identification from invitation to identification. How much more plain can it be? I am the bread of life, he says in 48. And again in 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. I am the bread of life. Jesus is making it clear. We saw this last week where he said the same thing. I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate bread in the wilderness and they died. Jesus is that life source. He said the father's going to give you a better bread. And they think he's talking about a real cake and loaf. And they say, give that to us always. And, And Jesus insists, no, I'm the bread of life. Which then gets to a point of clarification. So I'm invitation, identification, clarification. And here, Jesus is picking back up on their own words. If you remember, when they find Jesus, they say to him, Our fathers ate bread in the wilderness. Look at verse uh, 32. Let's go back to verse 31. Uh, 30, 30. The crowd, and this is why I'm saying there's a line of continuity. Jesus is picking up on what the crowd said to him, but he's now talking to the Jews, which suggests there's at least some level of overlap between the group labeled the Jews and this crowd. What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So Jesus, picking up on that, says, yeah, you're right. Your fathers ate bread in the wilderness. You know what? They died. They all died. Now, what does he mean, they all died? I, I at least two things. Unlike their fathers who ate the man in the wilderness, they died. Well, the most obvious thing is they physically died. The problem is that doesn't really distinguish them from anyone else who lived back then. And, and so Jesus is at least saying, I think he's saying more than, clearly the, the, the miracle bread from heaven that the ancestors ate in the wilderness did not give them eternal life because they died. But more importantly, and I think Jesus is hearkening back to the narrative, these are spiritually dead people. I mean, they're, they're, they're relating themselves to their fathers who left Egypt. But what happened to their fathers who left Egypt? How many of those who left Egypt entered the promised land? How many? This is an Awana test. How many people made it through the wilderness to the promised land? How many? Two. A couple million people leave Egypt. Two people. Joshua and Caleb. Not even Moses. In other words, the generation of those in the wilderness is not exactly a generation to model yourself after, to identify with. Turn, turn to Psalm 95. Quickly, turn to Psalm 95. Speaking about this is a dire warning. Psalm 95 begins with an invitation to come worship the Lord. Oh, come. Let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. So it begins with an invitation to worship. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. But then, verse 9, begins a warning. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, 
as on the day at Manasseh. He's listing events in the wilderness wanderings where the people grumbled and complained and hardened their hearts. When, they put, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my works, for 40 years I loathed that generation. It is not a good thing to be told God loathes you. And there's an entire generation of people, minus two, who died in the wilderness because they put God to the test and God in response loathed them. And I said, they are a people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. These people are more alike their fathers in the wilderness than they know. And Jesus is reminding them, your, your fathers ate bread in the wilderness and they died and they're faithless and God loathed them. God loathed them. The, your fathers, back in John 6, verse 49, ate the man in the wilderness and they died. But in contrast to that, what Jesus is offering them is something far, far better. Remember, they just want more food. They just want more food. Feed us again. Jesus even told them, you're only here, not because you saw signs, because you had your fill of the food. And sure enough, they, they give Jesus a suggestion. Our fathers ate bread in the wilderness. Do what Moses did. Feed us again. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus identifies himself as the bread, and then in contrast to the bread in the wilderness, he insists he is the living bread. Notice that modifier. First he calls himself in verse 48, I am the bread of life. And you might think the bread that gives life. But here, with the ordering of the modifier, I think it makes it more clear. The bread which is itself life, the living bread, the bread that contains life, the, the bread that is overflowing with life. This isn't just a bread that gives life. This is a bread that is life. And this gets back to John 5. As the Father has life in himself, he's given the Son to have life in himself. As the Father raises the dead, he's given the Son authority to give life to whom he will. Jesus is the living bread. And this is now speaking to incarnation. Incarnation. Because Jesus is going to say the bread is his flesh. Carne is flesh. Incarnation. The enfleshment of the Son of God. What was spoken all the way back in chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone another universal inclusive, eats of this bread. He will live forever. And Jesus has already given us the interpretive key. Remember, coming to Jesus satiates hunger. Believing in Jesus satiates thirst. So when he talks about eating, we know what he means is a coming and a believing and a tasting and a being satisfied by. Which means what he's saying is no different in meaning than what he said in verse 47, whoever believes his eternal life. Now it's whoever eats. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. Incarnation. Jesus is the living bread come down from heaven. Which brings us now to the next development. Jesus is now going to broach the new topic that's going to dominate the rest of this discussion. 
Up, up till now, we've been talking about bread. We've been making connection with the manna in the wilderness, the manna in the wilderness, the manna in the wilderness. All of a sudden, bread drops out, and what takes its place is flesh, and then in verse 53, blood. Eating and drinking flesh and blood. That, that's what dominates the rest of this discussion. And this is the hinge point. Jesus ends his discussion about bread and begins his discussion about flesh. And they trip up on this. And I mentioned last week that the early Christians were accused by their detractors of cannibalism precisely because of misunderstanding what is meant here. So what is being talked about? What is being talked about? Well, John's given us a clue all the way back at the beginning of chapter 6. Remember, we pointed out that John drops out a lot of details. He doesn't mention that Jesus taught the crowd. He doesn't mention that Jesus sent the crowd away. He doesn't mention a number of things. But what does John tell us in verse 4 of chapter 6? Now, the Passover, the feast of Jews, was at hand. And we said that that at least might explain why this crowd is here. But I'll give you another reason this is significant. Jesus, in the context of the fast-approaching Passover, with the wilderness wanderings and the exodus in view with Moses, now begins about eating flesh that gives life. What possibly could that refer to? And the crowds might miss it, but the studious reader of John's gospel won't. How did John the Baptist identify Jesus? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in Exodus 12, with the institution, Passover, which is, this is the event that gets them out of Egypt. They get out of Egypt, they cross the Red Sea, Moses sings a song, and then it's manna time. These are bang, bang, bang events. Exodus 12, the lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts of the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night. There it is. You eat the flesh of the lamb. And Jesus, making it clear that, that eating this bread is, a, is akin to coming to him and, and believing in him, is now shifting from manna to the Passover, Paschal lamb imagery that will dominate the rest of the chapter. That's what it gets introduced here. The bread that I will give to the world, the life of the world is my flesh. So your blank here, and we will sing our closing song, is the bread Jesus gives is his physical death offered for the life of the world. The bread Jesus gives is his physical death offered for the life of the world. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. In what sense is Jesus giving his flesh? He's giving his flesh to be crucified. He's giving his flesh that he can be poured out and extinguished. That, that's why he had to become man. He became man ultimately that he might die on behalf of his people. And here he makes that point clear. He, last week we saw that Jesus both offers the bread and is the bread. Here ultimately what is it that we're believing in? we're coming to? We're coming to a crucified given up Messiah, who gave himself up on the cross. That's who we're coming to. That's what we're feeding from. That's what's giving us life. That is what is sustaining us. That is what is upholding us. And on that basis, we have eternal life. John is introducing that crucifixion theme here again. It's, it's not been much in the gospel. So far, it's only been the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, destroy this temple, and in three days I will lift it up. And in John 3, he obliquely refers to as Moses lifted up the serpent, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So far, there hasn't been a ton of crucifixion death language for Jesus, but here it shows up right here. 
It shows up right here. And so I would warn you, I'd warn you to to consider these things soberly. Jesus will not be received simply as a good teacher. He insists, no, 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 you've got to receive him as one come down from heaven. And you've got to receive him like the Israelites received the serpent that saved them. You've got to receive him as one given up. You've got to not just come and nibble, but come and eat of his flesh. Find life in his death. Turn Turn to Hebrews 3. Hebrews 3. The author of Hebrews makes this similar point. Also warning his readers about the dangers of grumbling, the dangers of hesitation, the the dangers of shrinking back rather than boldly drawing near. In chapter 3, verse 7, he's going to quote Psalm 95 that we read a few minutes ago. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of testing in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked to that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, the author of Hebrews makes application of Psalm 95. Take care, brothers, lest there be in you any one of you, an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. What's the cure? But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is written, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And then he asks the question, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Answer, was it not all those who left Egypt Led by Moses? Yes. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. Now, what was the predominant sin of Israel in the wilderness? What was their besetting, repeated again and again and again sin? Grumbling, right? Complaining, questioning, doubting God. Look at verse 19. So you see they're unable to enter because of unbelief. Yeah, grumbling and doubting is a serious deal. So back to our text, back to John 6. Jesus is the living bread that has come down from heaven, and he's the only living bread. You require God's instruction, God's enlightening, and Jesus alone mediates it. And so rather than chasing your tail, trying to figure out if God is drawing you or not. Come, come believe. Come humbly, come recognizing if you do. It's only because the Father has drawn you, but come. Have life, eternal life. Eat of the bread that is the flesh of the Son of Man that was given up on your behalf. We are those who are sustained and find life in his death. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, they are not going to like this in John 6. And next week when we pick this up, they will dispute among themselves. And the disciples aren't going to like this. But praise God, if you're a Christian, we are those who, having eyes that see and ears that hear, see glory and truth in this. And so we trust in him to hold us fast, to keep us safe and secure. And that if we die before he returns, his voice will call us from the grave. Let's call the worship team up as we close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you that you have drawn us. We thank you that you have given us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you have opened our hearts to believe, that you have taught us 
And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who you have not taught, I pray that you would humble them, that you would teach them, that they even this morning might hear your voice through the words of your Son. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.